Hello, my name is James Kenny, and welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. And the first episode is called The Foundation, Mythology and Legend. Many waves of marauding tribes had previously landed for shelter or were blown by storm force winds onto the shores of the island of Ireland, which was known at that time as Inish Elga or Noble Island. But these invaders were always repulsed or quickly driven out by the earlier Mesolithic settlers during the period 8000 to 4500 BC. We know very little about these people. However, two pieces of Mesolithic human metacarpal were found in 1993, along with 150 other human fragments in a cave at Kilura, County Limerick, and have been dated to 7000 BC. The bones were found amongst other human fragments, animal fragments, and weathered microlites, scrapers, and pieces of pottery. Near Ballycastle in County Mayo, beneath wild bogland, the Cada fields were discovered, the most extensive Stone Age monument in the world, consisting of field systems, dwelling areas and megalithic tombs. The stone-walled fields extend over a thousand acres and are dated to 4000 BC. Some of the early settled tribes who arrived afterwards during the Neolithic period, about 3000 BC, are referred to in ancient mythology as Partalonians, Nemidians, and Formorians. Partalon and his followers landed on Noble Island at Inverskena, or Donegal Bay, in 2679 BC. They settled near Asaro, but later moved to Minalti on a plain between Hoth and Tala. In 2669 BC, the Partalonians fought the Formorians, who were probably pirates from Scandinavia. The Formorians continuously preyed upon successive inhabitants of Ireland, under their leader Gikal Grikenkus, and they are mostly portrayed in mythology as having either one eye, one arm, or one leg. It is possible that the name O'Sullivan, or in Irish O'Sullivan, and has a meaning descended from one-eyed, is possibly Formorian. Slanga MacPartalon, or son of Partalon, was one of the earliest settlers, and he was buried in Cairn Sleva Slanga at the Hill of Slain in 2666 BC. And afterwards, 9,000 of his followers, 9,000 Partalonians, died of the plague about 2379 BC and are buried in Tavlocht Winter Partalon, and it is believed this burial place is a mound on the Hill of Slain. In 2349 BC, the Namidians came from Scythia, which is now called Spain. Their leader, Nemhid, had with him his wife Maka and his sons Starn, Irvionel Foig, Annan, and Fergus Latdarek. They came in 34 ships, each containing 30 people, and began their settlement. Twelve years after coming to Ireland, Maka, 
the wife of Nemed, died. Some say at the hand of Balor, a Formorian chieftain. Armagh, or in Irish Ardvaca, the hill of Maca, is where she was buried, and the site still carries her name to this day. The Nemedians prospered for a while, but were not left in peace, being preyed upon by the Formorians. Although most died of the plague, many were killed by the marauding Formorians. The word Tavlocht signifies a plague burial site, generally a common grave. The huge number of deaths in the 6th century, which is suggested by the number of Tavlock sites located around the country, would certainly have created fear, if not widespread panic. This was a pandemic in which some people dropped dead in less than one day. Some fell ill but recovered, and some remained unaffected. As we are currently in the grip of a global COVID-19 pandemic, it might be helpful to tell what we know about plagues in prehistoric Ireland. The Justinian plague is the first and best known outbreak of the first plague pandemic, which continued to reoccur until the middle of the 8th century. Some historians believe the first plague pandemic was one of the deadliest pandemics in history, resulting in the deaths of an estimated 25 to 50 million people. During two centuries of reoccurrence, a death toll equivalent to as much as half of Europe's population at the time of the first outbreak. The plague's social and cultural impact has been compared to that of the Black Death that devastated Eurasia in the 14th century. A sudden climate change in the decade after 538 AD can be observed from the study of Irish trees. And the arrival of the Pubonic Plague in Ireland around that time seems to correlate with the widespread trajectory of the Justinian Plague, which had reached Western Europe by 543 AD. The foremaster state that in 543 AD there was an extraordinary universal plague through the world, which swept away the noblest third part of the human race. And the annals of Ulster christened it the Pandemic Blethet. It is estimated that nearly 50% of the European population died over two centuries, as the plague returned periodically up until the 8th century. However, moving on, we know that from time to time, other adventurers landed here. Those who we have more precise knowledge of were the Firbolg, a tribe who assimilated over time with another clan called the Tuatha Dé Danann, and were ruled over by three brothers, namely Magrena, Macecht, and Macul, in the period 1317 to 1287 BC. The three were grandsons of Dagda and sons of Dalebeth and Emmas. Dalebeth having ruled the united Tuatha Dé and Formorians for ten years, before dying at the hand of his son Fiaca around 1317 BC. Their wives were named Erin, Faula and Bamba, and they each had the island alternatively named after them down through the years. Ireland has frequently been referred to in ballads and poems by these three female names. The Firbolg tribe were what we would refer to today as a pastoral tribe, engaged in sheep and goat herding, and from what we can gather from evidence found at various burial sites, 
They were of stocky build, with large round skulls, dark hair, with sallow skin and dark eyes. The Tuha de Donham, on the other hand, were tall, with red or blonde hair, blue or green eyes, pale skin, and had a limited knowledge of science and construction, which endeared them to the uncivilized fir bullock. Evidence was found that would indicate that they were hunters and fishermen, and had farmed in a very primitive way, growing some wild root crops and herding sheep and goats. The woman spun wool on a hand-held spindle. They stitched up animal skins with leather tongs and animal gut. The hides were cut and shaped using microlites, a small shaped flint, typically used as a tool or weapon, such as a spear, or they also used the sharp edge of a clam or oyster shell. These shells were also used to scrape clean the fatty substance from animal pelts. This animal fat was considered precious by the tribes for medicinal purposes, as well as for making rush candles and waterproofing hides. Women also did the cooking, mending, sewing and garment making, preparing various skins and hides for clothing and boat making, while taking care of children and milking goats. The men of the tribe were warriors and hunted, fished for food and built shelters to sleep in. These shelters were made of timber wattles, interlaced with subtle branches and plastered with thick clay mud. The roof was made from rushes, which were cut in season on the river bank, dried in the sun and wind and tied in bundles with animal gut before being secured on the roof apex on stout wooden poles. Their tools consisted of small blades of flint, known as microlites, which were probably bound to a shaft to form a spear, an arrow or a harpoon. The site chosen by the tribe for their primitive settlement was usually located close to water, on a river or lake. Fire was sacred to these Neolithic people. Once a fire was started, it was never allowed to die out. To start the fire, the flame was initially ignited by friction, created by rubbing two seasoned sticks together in a collection of dried leaves and ferns. For food, the seas and rivers were fished. Rabbits, hares and other small animals Wild duck, goose and pheasant were plentiful, and when caught, killed and prepared, they were coated all over with a paste of thick clay mud, and placed in the centre of the glowing embers of a fire until cooked. This practice of primitive cooking of food to feed the tribe led them to discover a method of creating pottery, examples of which survive today, having been unearthed at various excavated sites in recent years. It certainly was a great day for the natives when they accidentally discovered that pottery and urns could be crafted from soft clay to any desired size and shape and placed in the glowing embers of a fire to become the miracle and forerunner of today's pottery art, now made in craft workshops in large modern kilns. When a sheep or goat or the occasional wild boar or red deer was killed for food, it was skinned and the hide given over to the women, while the men set up two forked struts, one each side of a fire. They ran the carcass through with a pole and placed the ends in the forked uprights. The fire was stoked, all the while turning the sizzling roast until cooked through. 
Meanwhile, the outer pelt was being quickly scraped of the excess useful fat, while the hide was cured and later fashioned into a tunic, bed cover, or some other useful piece of apparel. An abundance of vegetables and fruits were found growing in the wilds and woodlands. For example, the mustard cress, wild garlic, the wood sorrel, the yellow dandelion, and its milky roots and leaves were used then as a vegetable and for medicinal purposes. Also found in abundance in the woodlands was a potato-shaped fungus called truffle. A variety of mushrooms, both edible and poisonous, were growing in the woods and forests. The poisonous ones were avoided when it was discovered that they had an adverse effect and often led to fatalities among the tribe. In season, an abundance of apples and berries of every kind were available to the natives, as well as hazelnuts and acorns, all there for the picking. So this land was a prized possession to be fought for. In future episodes, this bell sound indicates an economic commentary. This was the prehistoric era before the Greek philosophers and the first economic revolution, when early people survived in the forest by gathering berries and killing animals. And later on, bands of people clustered together in villages and invented agriculture, when they discovered how to grow plants and tame animals. The discovery of pottery with circular marks and rings found in caves and burial chambers has puzzled many for years. Experts have conducted and concluded that they were copied from the annual rings in the cross-section of tree trunks. Maybe right. But in our own childhood, we remember the magic circles which we made in a pond when we dropped a pebble into the clear waters and watched with wonder when circle after circle emerged from a centre point and spread out to disappear eventually like magic. This sort of magic was there since time began. It required the playfulness of the people on the bank of the lake to throw the first stone into the calm, clear waters. These early people saw this centrifugal magic as an art form, which could be copied. So they used a goose quill or a fine bone to copy the circles onto pottery, while the clay was soft. So too was it in the Iron Age, when tools for marking stone were made, and the same magic circles were formed. Some English writers, when trying to fathom the lifestyle of these ancient Irish natives, have said that they lived underground in dugout trenches. This must be discounted, and is not true, in my opinion, as in a country with so much rainfall, they would be washed out in a heavy shower. Also, they did not have the means of excavating such a trench or tunnel. Their only tools were stone axe heads, shaped like a hatchet, but had to be handheld by one man while another struck down on it with a shillelagh or mallet. The only kind of cutting tools available were microlites and the sharp edge of an oyster shell, which were found in abundance in later years during excavations of ancient burial sites. These microlites and the sharp edge of the oyster shell were used to cut and trim animal hides and skins and to remove the thick coating of fat for waterproofing 
a coracle or curragh. That is a native boat made up of a basketwork frame over which the treated skins were stretched and tied with leather thongs or eel skins. The women of the tribe also used the sharp-edged shells to trim their hair when it was long enough to be a danger from fire or become entangled in brushwood. The men also used the shell, microlite or embers of a stick to trim their hair and beards. Fire was used to make dugout boats and to fell large trees. The method used was to light a fire at the base of the tree. Evidence of this was discovered when the remains of petrified tree trunks and roots were found in bogs. The upper parts were burned and the roots perfectly preserved. Today artists create beautifully carved works of art from bog oak. The ancient wooden pieces are fashioned and polished into unbelievable figures, which are sought after by tourists and collectors from all over the world. Visitors to Ireland can now see settlements like those lived in by the ancient tribes, which have been discovered and recreated in unique settings at Craganown in County Clare and Lochgar in County Limerick. Archaeologists have also located the largest cemetery of megalithic tombs ever found anywhere in Ireland, where 60 tombs predating Newgrange by 700 years have been found. They are located in a site in County Sligo, east of Loch Arrow, in the parish of Kilmactranny. This is Maitura of the Formorians, where a battle took place between the Tuatha de Danann and the Formorian tribe, who disputed the territory. The fighting was so fierce and hostile that the latter Formorians were slaughtered, and to the present time the plain abounds with memories of the past. In sepulchral monuments as a sad reminder of our prehistoric era. Newgrange, as mentioned before, is a prehistoric monument in County Meath, located eight kilometres west of Drogheda on the north side of the River Boyne. It is a Grand Passage tomb built during the Neolithic period, around 3200 BC. In the county of Kerry, southwest of Ventry, at the base of Mount Eagle, is a village of ancient beehive-shaped stone-roofed houses. Cahar Connor, as it is known, is the most perfectly preserved circular stone Cahar in the country. Near Tralee, on the shoulder of Cahar Conry Mountain, is a large stone fortress, built up in pagan fashion, of large stones and called the Fortress of Kuri Makdara, who was king in the first century. Kuri was the son of Fergus, ex-king of Ulster, and possessed the district west of Abbeyfield, which ultimately gave the name Kiri to the county we now know as Kerry. Craganown is a purpose-built ancient village with house structures reminiscent of a bygone age. It is constructed on a lake on the grounds of a restored castle, where you can explore the roots of the people homesteads, animals and artefacts of Celtic ancestors of over 1,000 years ago. Loch Gore is a structure of the type that existed in 2600 BC. The area surrounding this settlement is steeped in ancient history. The Heritage Centre, located by the lakefront in Loch Gore, provides an overview of one of Ireland's most important archaeological sites. It is the only area in the country where you can see visible evidence of every age 
since Neolithic times. Not far from Lochgur is the village of Bruri, which translated means Fort of the King. The king referred to is Alil Alam, king of Munster in the 3rd century, who was married to Saiv, daughter of Khan of the Hundred Battles. His grave, a passage tomb with north-facing entrance, is located on Slevenamuk Hill near the Church of Duntry League between Galbally and Knocklong. Lugig Macong, King of Ireland, 173 to 2003 AD, was Alil's foster son and Sive's son. The Clare Hills overlooking Limerick are also steeped in ancient history. King Brian Boru is remembered for defeating the Danish Viking warriors at the Battle of Clontarf on the 23rd of April, 1014 AD. He had his palace at Kinkora, overlooking the River Shannon, in what today is the main street of the town of Killaloo. This town stands amidst the most beautiful scenery. Also in County Clare are the picturesque hills of Cratlow, overlooking Limerick City. The hills in ancient times were called the Mountain of the Death of the King. The king referred to was Crimthan, AD 366 to 379. And the story is told that when Ohi My Van died, and he was King of Ireland from 358 to 365 AD, and had been married to Queen Mongfen, Crimthan Macfiddick, her brother, was made king. The queen objected, hoping instead to have her own son Brian made king. So she plotted and planned the death of her brother. She hadn't much time in which to carry out this foul deed, as Crimpton was leaving Mayo for County Clare the next morning. She spent the night preparing a poison drink, leaving it secreted in the larder. Crimpton needed refreshments for his journey, so she instructed her servant to pour the drink into the receptacle for his journey, which he did. There was a quantity of this liquid left over, and as his mistress was going salmon fishing next day, her servant packed it in her tackle bag. He was not aware that it was a deadly poisonous concoction. Crimpton became thirsty on reaching the hills of Cratlow. He stopped with his entourage and partook of the deadly brew, without knowing that his sister was intent on removing him permanently. When Crimpton became ill and complained of having stomach pains, his servants gave what assistance they could to make him comfortable. But they couldn't save his life, and he died in the Cratlow Hills. Meanwhile, back in Mayo, Queen Mongfen had gone fishing to Little Island on the River Moy. She spent some time trying her luck and was about to return home when she hooked a large salmon. It was so big that she spent some time trying to land it, and when at last she succeeded, she was fatigued and exhausted, and reached into her tackle bag, took out her own poison without knowing it, and soon was a lifeless corpse on the river bank. King Ohi Moivan had a second wife named Corinna. She put her son Nile forward to fill the vacant monarchy, and he was duly crowned king. This new king was destined to figure greatly in Irish history as Nile of the Nine Hostages from 370 to 405 AD. Moore was King of Ireland in 120 to 123 AD. He lived on the shores of Loch Erin in County Fermanagh. It is said that most families in Ireland can claim to be descended from the Milesian royalty. The two earliest kings and perhaps the first kings of Ireland of the Milesian colony were Eber and Eremon, 
They erected a type of fort on the banks of the River Noor in County Kilkenny, called Rathbeg. This fort still exists, and it is believed that Eremon afterwards died and his remains are buried there. A church founded by St. Canis, called Kilquinnock, gives its name to the city and county of Kilkenny. Mm-hmm.